welcome to the Wine Access Unfiltered Podcast. I am Amanda McCrossin, delighted to be here, as always, with Vanessa Conlon, who's in a much warmer and more luxurious spot than I am right now, and I'm very jealous. I am. I'm in Maui. How dare you? How dare you in these winter months? Uh, We're also joined by CJ McCollum, who I'm so excited to finally, 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 finally get on the show. We met, what, like a year and a half, two years ago out in Aspen. And I figured since we're talking all things Oregon, you were the perfect person to bring in. So welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm flattered you you believe I can speak so well to Oregon. (laughs) I think you can speak better than both of us. You've lived there. You own a vineyard there. You make wine there. Uh, you worked there for a while. Now you're now you're hooping elsewhere. But uh, I think you'll have a lot to say about this this episode. I'm excited because I have fallen in love with Oregon over the past few years, as I'm sure a lot of you have out there listening. Whether it's the Pinot Noir or the Chardonnay, or as Vanessa pointed out earlier, they're making darn good Pinot Gris. So we have Pinot a lot Gris. to talk about in that regard. Um, we all have a little bit of wine, and if you are part of the Wine Access Unfiltered podcast, you should definitely have a bottle of delicious Pinot with you. That's the Jolette Pinot. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. But go ahead and get that open. Hang out with us, and we're going to jump right into a few things. Wine sales. It's a must whenever we do this podcast. Winery sales in Napa, although we're not talking about a big guy, we're actually talking about the fact that a couple of wineries, unlike some of the other wineries that we've talked about before in their sales, like Joseph Phelps and Silverado, there are two wineries that are for sale in Napa Valley, and they are listing their buying and selling price. So I thought this was... I think there's a lot of there's a lot of nuggets in this article, which is uh, by Esther Mobley from the San Francisco Chronicle. Napa vineyard sales are usually secret, so why was this 34 million dollar deal so public? The winery in question here is Seven Stones, which uh, Vanessa, are you familiar with? Oh yeah, I am. I've I've sold their wines before, and I've visited, and it's a beautiful, beautiful property. Yeah. CJ, you any familiar with Seven Stones in Napa Valley? I'm not familiar with Seven Stones, but I am familiar with the fact that it's going on for for sale for thirty four million dollars. You are from? How are you familiar? Were you looking at it? I just, I just no, I'm I'm not in a position to do that right now, uh, (laughs) as I'm currently building out a vineyard in Oregon. But I'm always curious to see what's kind of going on. I have some uh, some wine advisors who send me listings or things that may potentially be hitting the market sometimes before they hit the market, sometimes after. So I can just see where the, the price comps are compared to Oregon as opposed to California. Yeah, well, it's it's setting the bar high for the rest of uh, the rest of the wine world. Forty five acres, Saint Helena property that contains Saint H- Seven Stones Winery. Uh, it was it was sold for thirty four million dollars. You do get a couple houses and two and three quarters acres of grapevines with potential of five more being planted. But I'm no accountant, but like those numbers don't sound. No. Like anybody's making any sort of return. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, it makes soon. me wonder if it's, yeah, just sort of like a jewel in the crown, like a showpiece. I think if they were yeah. actually like, yeah, trying to make money off of the property from from the vineyards, no way. <laughs> they, what would they yeah. have to charge per bottle to make that financially viable? <laughs> like, well, that's sort of the, that's car. the takeaway of, right. And that's sort of the takeaway of this article is like, is Napa Valley just turning into this place where, People aren't necessarily going to be buying these these already established wineries for the brand name or even for the vines. Is it just like, you know, sort of a trophy? And I think that 
I mean, we'll see what happens. Seven Stones has always been a very tiny production. In fact, I think for a long time they had their claim to fame was like smallest operating winery in Napa Valley or something. Aaron Pot made the wine. I don't know if he's still making the wine, but he was making the wine. Um, and then another another winery that's also listing their price is Meteor Vineyard down in Coombsville, which you're probably familiar with for going into some pretty pretty high named brands. And actually, Meteor was making wine themselves that was very good. I remember selling that at press and I, I loved it. Um, but that's going for quite a high price tag too. I think it's $35 million for that guy. I actually had a friend who went down and uh, looked at the house and he said it was like spectacular. But it does sound like these places that are being put up for sale and they're listing the prices are these like trophy wineries that nobody's actually yeah. going to make money off of. But Right. I don't I don't know. I don't I don't live that kind of life. So I don't know who this is appealing to, but like you can call me if you want. <laughs> CJ, any any interest in uh in purchasing a thirty-five million dollar property in Coombsville? I don't know who would say no faster, my wife or my financial advisor, <laughs> but I think <laughs> looking looking at the way the the wine scope has shifted, I think this is more of a vanity play for sure. You look at the financials behind wineries, obviously the acreage, how much fruit you can produce, what you could sell direct to consumer versus wholesale. Um I value uh, my hard-earned money and my wife's hard-earned money and the the possibilities of taking away from college tuition from my son Jacoby over this just doesn't just doesn't seem like the right thing to do right now but I would love to have some of the wine I would love to uh, be able to speak to them uh, about their process and their thought process behind the purchasing of the land and what yeah. the plan is yeah as as someone who has actually bought a vineyard like what were the things that really mattered to you throughout that process? Um, I think sustainability is the business sustainable. Um, mm -hmm. What type of soil do you have? What type of fruit can you produce? Um, do you have people that could buy the fruit in the event that, you know, it doesn't turn out the way you wanted? Mm -hmm. I think all the decisions that I've made historically, not just in wine, but in general, have all involved exit strategies. So making sure there's exit strategies at each turn that you go through and then figuring out what you can actually do with the land outside of just um, a vineyard. For my wife and I, we purchased 318 acres in Carlton, and we have an 18-acre uh, nursery on the property as well, a ruby nursery where we sell, we sell Japanese maple leaves right now. We'll continue to expand in flowers wow. and plants. So it was more about – yeah, so thank, thank you. So it was, it was more about the location, right? Like where is the property at? What water resources do you have in place? Do you have water rights? Um, can you build a vineyard out? Um, and then the other part was the soil, uh, understanding where we were, we were located, um, in Carlton, it, it was, it was an offer I couldn't refuse. Was it, I'm just curious, was it more, cause I think some people listening are like, I could scrounge together $35 billion or like something to like buy a video, but like ultimately was it more work throughout that process than you had anticipated and like, or was it? You know, 10, 10 months to diligence. So seeing the property, walked it. Walked it again. My wife and I walked it, brought the accountant out, um, brought some of my wine consultants out. <clears throat> then we began to drill. You know, we drilled holes throughout the property to kind of make sure you got to be sure before you make those types of purchases. You got to know what you can grow. Um, yeah. We figured out what we were going to be able to grow. We got understanding the water situation, understanding the acreage breakdowns of what we would want to plant if we're going to plant on different parts of the property. Um, can we build um, structures? on the property? What does that look like financially? So that was ten, you know, 10 months due diligence to figure out if we're going to buy it or not. And, and now we're going through the process of building out the master plan and have since, I think we planted uh, seven acres last year. We'll do 15. Um, what are we in? 15 in 2023 and then I think 50 then 80. So we're kind of like slowly building it out. 
Um, but obviously keeping finances at the forefront, but also figuring out uh, what we could potentially sell, not just direct to consumer, but also wholesale. So there was a long process. It wasn't just like, oh, this is a cool idea. Let's do it. It was more like, let's make sure if we're going to do this, that we're serious about it and that we have the right experts around us to kind of show us how things should be done. Yeah. And I mean, you and your wife both have like full-time jobs. So it's not like you had like spare time to, <laughs> and, a, exactly. and a kid. Um, that's a lot. That's a lot. Uh, but I mean, obviously super stoked about your project in Oregon. And I think we'll talk a little bit more about that as we dive more into like the meaty part of the Oregon section. Uh, one last thing I want to mention, uh, are you familiar with, uh, your fellow James Harden NBA player plays for my team, the Sixers. Hello. Shout out to Philly. Uh, Sixers star James Harden puts the beard on the bottle. He partnered with Jam Shed Wines to create Jay Harden's uh, Jay Shed California Cabernet. Um, I'm going to flash the picture on the YouTube version. You should take a picture. You should take a peek at this label. It's pretty fun. It's kind of groovy. It's got his beard literally on the label. Uh any, are either of you familiar with this product? I, this is the first that I've heard about it. I read the article, but I wasn't familiar before that. Yeah. I, I follow him on Instagram and, and seen he was he posted about putting a wine out, but I've never tasted it. Yeah. It looks like it's pretty accessible. I think these are going to be like in the 10 to $15 range. Traditionally, Jamshed wines have been on like the sweeter side. I've never had them, but it actually says on their website when I was looking at the wines, it's like off dry, medium sweet. So there's definitely like a a ripeness to these wines. Um, so yeah, I how I mean, CJ, you got into the wine game a few years ago. How how have you seen the market take to you? Like as an NBA player, has it been surprising to you? Because I'm I'm just curious when someone puts out a wine like this, like how many more people does it bring into the wine fold? I think it brings a lot of people into the wine fold. I think for me personally, my family didn't drink a lot of wine growing up and yeah. until I kind of exposed them to going to vineyards, doing tastings, you know, talking with Psalms, being able to do barrel tastings and really kind of dive into the wine making process. I don't think my family was interested because we weren't exposed to it growing up yeah. where I come from in Canton, Ohio. Um, they're not drinking wine. And then where I went to at, at Lehigh University, they definitely weren't drinking wine. If you know how the college life goes, it's more beer and spirits and things of that nature. So, as I began to get more serious uh, with it, my family began to get more curious about it. And I think it's been great for me and, and, and the community that I come from, the communities that I've been around my whole life, because now they're more likely to order wine when they go to restaurants, they're more likely mm. to feel comfortable be because of the exposure that I've given them. But I think when people know that you're serious about the wine space, they're more um, accepting to you. Uh, sometimes they think that you're just putting your name on a label, but I think the, the way I've kind of approached it is, you know, with trying to learn, I'm trying to educate myself and trying to show that I'm taking this seriously, understanding that this is a serious um, venture, but also a serious space that um, is becoming more inclusive to everybody. I know that you're taking it seriously because when we went to Aspen and you handed me the wine list and I was like, is champagne okay? And you're like, let's do it. Uh, I knew that you were a serious, you're a serious player. Now that you're, you know, you're a vintner, if people are afraid to, I mean, Amanda's obviously a psalm, but if people are afraid to, you know, bring a wine to your house to share or order wine in front of you because they think you're going to judge them. I'm more afraid to, to, to pick out wine in front of Amanda, honestly. Uh um, <laughs> you told me one of your favorite producers was like Walter Scott, so I knew we were going to be just fine. You can pick out wine anytime. Yeah, but I was nervous. I was just like, what if what if my palate is just not how it's supposed to be? You know what I mean? Like, what if your I have a bad palate? Like, <laughs> do you still no, have palate? Do you have palate insecurity? Is that like still a thing for you? Not anymore. Not anymore. Okay. Because I just I've realized that life. 
not not that wine is like food, but like I love French fries, but some people may not like French fries. That doesn't mean the French fries are nasty. And I think that's the approach I take with wine is that you may not like my rosé, but that doesn't mean it's a bad rosé. It just means that your taste, you don't prefer raspberries and, and, and fruits the way I do. So I'm not nervous anymore, but I think my family and friends, they they tend to not not give me wines unless it's from Oregon. They they know it's safe if it's from Oregon, they'll do it. Or if it's a wine that I've had with them together. So yeah. you know, they they know I they know I like, you know, certain types of wine. If it's California, it needs to be a certain type of wine. Um, if it's, you know, a super Tuscan, they know that I'm generally going for it. Um, Mel introduced me to white burgundy. So they know I play in these certain spaces to where like, if they are going to bring me something, they just kind of stick to the spaces that either I've exposed them to or that we've shared together, which is safe. What did Mellow give you? That's white burgundy. Honestly, I'm embarrassed. I can't remember the name of it, probably because it was in the bubble when we were drinking a lot, but I'll, I'll text him and ask, <laughs> I'll text him and ask him what it was, but it was... I went from not really drinking white wines to diving down the realm of this may be better than red. Like, why was I why was I like neglecting this for so long? Like, I didn't have the I wasn't exposed to the right white wines. And I was generally, you know, when you begin in a space, you find a comfort zone. I was like volcanic soil. I got to have this Pinot Noir. I got to have volcanic soil. It has to be, you know, I was messing with Bryant Creek for a while. I was messing with obviously the Willamette Valley. And I was just targeting certain wines. Like Walter Scott was the first Oregon Pinot Noir that I had. So oh, if it wasn't on that scale, like then I just, I was afraid. I was like, no, this is what I know is good. It's like when you have pink lemonade and then you get exposed to regular lemonade. You're like, okay, I can do these two now. <laughs> that might be Sorry my favorite analogy ever. That's such a... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, okay, I'll try strawberry lemonade, but it has to be lemonade. You know what I mean? Like That's kind of how I was. <laughs> to be clear, did you start first with pink lemonade? Before you I actually started with <laughs> no, I, I started with regular lemonade. I started okay. with regular lemonade. Then I went to pink, and then I started going to places, and they were like, "We have strawberry lemonade," and that's when I was like, "Whoa, this is this is a game changer." <laughs> it was a game changer for me. And that is CJ's wine journey in a nutshell. <laughs> you gotta love juice. You have to love juice in this world. You have to love juice. Speaking of juice, we're going to drink some good juice uh, in just a second. But before we get there, uh, we're going to remind everyone to like, subscribe, and review this podcast. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it. It helps other people find the show. It helps us continue to do the show because we get you know really nice feedback from our bosses who let us do this show. So that's very right. helpful. Yes, we love that. Um, and the other upside of leaving us a review is that we might read one of your reviews, which I'm going to do mm -hmm. right now. And this is from GRF1399, who said, fun show and you learned a lot too. Well, that's nice. I've been an, oh, I've been an Amanda McCrossin fan for some time now. Well, thank you so much. Um, and she's got me excited about wine. The show is another great extension of how she takes wine and makes it a fun experience. I learn a lot with the show, but I also have a good time with it. Vanessa Conlin is also excellent in the podcast. I agree. They have a great chemistry and their love of wine is infectious. Highly recommended to anyone who loves wine and wants to know more about it. Thank you for that very kind, enthusiastic, and like, well, written, thought out uh, time that you took to write that. That was not a, just a quickie, like, thanks so much. Um, really appreciate so it. And nice. uh, yeah. Isn't it so nice? I love when people yeah. look so nice things like that. Aww. Shout out to you. As a reminder, this podcast is available in video form on YouTube. And of course, you can catch all of our video clips on Instagram at Wine Access Unfiltered. 
If you are a part of the Wine Access Unfiltered Wine Club, this week's uh, this week's wine is the Gillette Pinot Noir. Uh, Vanessa is going to tell us a little bit about it in a second, but we're going to ask you to go ahead and get that open if you haven't already. We're going to jump into all things Oregon and keep the show flowing because this is your all-access guide to everything you need to know about Oregon wine. Let's get started. Vanessa, tell me about the Gillette because this is actually this was a wine that you guys introduced me to when we were talking about what was going to go in the shipment, and I didn't know it, but it when I heard about it, when I tasted it, I was super excited about it. I'm actually not su- totally surprised that you hadn't heard about it before because it's mostly a restaurant wine. This was sort of specifically created to be a by-the-glass. Um, it's owned by the same owner of Le Cadeau, um, and it's all from the Willamette. It's from six sites, six different all-hillside sites. In fact, the Le Cadeau, the estate vineyard, I haven't visited, but someone who I work with at Wine Access said it's the rockiest vineyard he's ever seen. Um, so kind of kind of a fun, lesser-known wine, unless you are uh, drinking by the glass uh, pretty frequently, but um, but I think it's in it's in Philly. So shout out to that. It's at what's the restaurant called there? La Park, Amanda. Uh, yeah, Park. Yeah, Park is Park. Park. Park yeah. is awesome. Yeah. So it's cool. Either- I didn't know that currently by the glass or has been at least historically by the glass there. Ooh, so, you know, yeah, yeah, I'm gonna be in yeah. in a few days. I'll check it out. That's go. so exciting. All right. Yeah, way to go. Um, very cool. Well, I want to I want to start by asking everyone. Initial thoughts on Oregon wine. Like, did you, when you first heard about Oregon wine or when you first tasted Oregon wine, what were your first impressions? What did you think? Like, Vanessa, why don't you start? Yeah. I mean, I, so I was familiar um, with, you know, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, um, Pinot Gris initially. I came to appreciate sparkling later. I really didn't know that sparkling wine, high quality sparkling wine was happening there until sort of later in my my wine journey. But um I love it. I'm a big fan of 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 all three of those varieties. For me, when blind tasting, let's say if it was like a flight of Pinot Noirs, there's something about Oregon that always told me where it was from, where it's almost like if you it's this mix of fresh berries. So it's almost like mm. if you went to the farmer's market and you took your basket and you just like took a heap of a handful of like every single berry that they had. It's like a very freshness. Like it's really fresh picked berry note. Um, but mm. I'm, I'm a big fan. I'm a huge fan. I wish we could get more of it. We've actually had a little bit of a, um, a shortage um, being able to find uh, particularly Pinot Noir uh, from Oregon lately. So I'm really excited to have the Gillette. What do you think is the reason for that? Well, I think they uh, had bad vintages uh, fires in 2020. You know, Mm. they had fires as well, just like we did in Napa. And we're seeing that, you know, with Napa cab um, shortage in the market. So I think a lot of it was that. Yeah. Interesting. Those are I think those are solid takeaways. I'm with you on the mixed berries. For me, Oregon Pinot. And I think we're specifically talking about the Willamette Valley in Oregon Mm. right right now, I think, which is mostly what you're seeing like out in the marketplace is coming from the wider appellation of the Willamette Valley. But for me, there's always like a, it wasn't quite new world. It wasn't quite old world. It kind of like sat right in the middle. Like mm-hmm. I find Sonoma Coast Pinot, you're always going to have a little bit more of that brambliness. You're going to have a little bit more of that like ripeness that like, you know, it can be a little bit more sun-kissed. I think uh, when you talk about Santa Barbara Pinot, leans a little bit into those like umami things, but it still has like a sun-kissed nature to it. You go to Burgundy, it's super tart, and you got like a like a like a really nice um, like nerviness to it. And I think yeah. in for me, Oregon was like all of those things combined with like a like a heady chewiness to it. Oregon 
is just different. It's it's not, you know, some people compare it to Burgundy. Some people are like, oh, it's New World, so it you know tastes like California. But like Oregon is very much its own thing. Um, but CJ, as an Oregon vintner and a lover of all things Oregon wine, <laughs> what were some of your first impressions of the Oregon uh, wine scene and the wines coming from there? When I first got drafted in 2013, I had no idea um, there were so many uh, wineries in Oregon. I think there's over 600. It's the state that produces the third most wine in the United States. So I was just unaware of all this stuff. And one of my teammates actually was like, we should go wine tasting. And I was like, we can do that here? Like coming from you know Ohio, I just wasn't exposed to the wine space and I wasn't exposed to Oregon in general. And I think right away, I just thought about how beautiful um, the valleys were like looking at the valleys, looking at the, the scenery that you get when you're on um, different vineyards, specifically, you know, in the Willamette Valley. And then you taste the wine and you see the diversity in the wines. Um, obviously, um, we get a lot of precipitation. Um, you get hot summers, but you get cool nights, especially as you get closer to the coast. I think the climate plays a huge factor in the grapes, but also some of the different winemakers that we have out there, some of the different um, wineries that we have out there. They have different techniques. They make wine in different ways to where it's enjoyable. And I've never had a bad time you know, tasting wine out in Oregon, going to different places. And I think the exposure that Oregon is getting now is, is rightfully deserved. Yeah. Have you seen... Um more like when you're talking about wine with other teammates, when you're out on the road, like are people talking about Oregon wine more or less the same? I think they're definitely talking about it more. Um, even when I'm going to restaurants, I'm starting to see, you know, consistency and that there's generally an Oregon Pinot, generally an Oregon Chardonnay, um, depending on what type of restaurant you're at. I think people have come to respect Oregon wine. They've come to respect the process in which it's made. And I think um, you talked about the purchase of that property uh, earlier um, out in California. There's a lot of buyers coming from California to Oregon because the land is cheaper, but you can still get mm. great fruit and produce quality wine, um, probably a fraction of the cost that you'll spend in California. Yeah. And I think this, you know, you can, you can buy a vineyard for less. I think the wines in general less. Although I think like I don't know, Vanessa, this is this is maybe an MW question. Why do you think Pinot has always been, unless we're talking about Burgundy, Pinot has always been less than Cabernet? Like it's just never gotten up there in, in terms of like average price per bottle when we're talking about like, you know, more premium producers. I mean, I think a lot of that was dictated by Napa Valley specifically, right? Where you just yeah. come to expect that. I mean, we know how expensive the land is, how expensive it is to to farm high quality, you know, to have a, a great winemaker. But I think that there's just a an expectation that, you know, Cabernet costs, you're going to have to pay for it. Um, I do think people will shell out. I mean, if I look particularly like Sonoma Coast, there, there are some higher price ones and people will, will pay for that. But you're right. It's never it's never had the same price tag. But I think that was really set by by Napa Valley being kind of it's the king, you know, Cabernet is the king of Napa and yeah. Napa has a such a strong brand name, you know, as you know, that um, I think they've did a good job, maybe a disservice in a way to consumers, but they did a good job yeah. of establishing themselves in the luxury space. Yeah, I think so. And I, I think you're right. I think the, the Napa thing definitely plays a huge role. And I think Napa definitely set the set the price for the entire wine world, right? If you look at prices of mm -hmm. Bordeaux, you look at prices of other like cold Cabernets, Napa Valley definitely has pushed that envelope more so than other regions. And as a result, other regions have followed suit. But I want to I want to wax poetic about 
Oregon and why we all love Oregon and just let us kind of like dive down a rabbit hole. But I, I, since we're talking about Napa, I think it's, I think a little history is in session, right? Like we should have a little moment for Oregon wine history. Um, I think much like the California wine history, like we started seeing vines being brought to Oregon in the 1850s. And then like the rest of the, the, the war, the country when prohibition hit, we saw a huge decline, right? Winery shut down, vine production stopped. And it really wasn't until the 1960s that Oregon, similar to California in the way that, uh, you know, Robert Mondavi brought everything to to light in the 60s in in Napa Valley. Um, We had a sort of renaissance in Oregon uh, by way of a man named Richard Summer. So Hillcrest Winery was uh, kind of where it all started for him. But what I didn't know, Vanessa, maybe maybe you knew this. Uh, maybe CJ, you knew this too. What I didn't know was that Oregon actually had its own little like version of the Judgment of Paris called, I'm going to butcher this, the Go Milo French Wine Olympiads in 1979. Are either of you familiar with this? No, no, no. Yeah, I found this on Wikipedia. So take it with a grain of salt. Um but th- so the French wine Olympiads happened in 1979, interestingly, right around the Judgment of Paris. And the, I- the 1975 Irie Vineyards Pinot Noir, like, won the whole thing over a bunch of French producers. And it, just like the Judgment of Paris, pissed so many people off that they ended up uh, doing a rematch. Uh, Robert Drouin did the rematch. And then the Joseph Drouin Chambon Musigny from... 1959, mind you, which I feel like is unfair. Like you're just going to randomly, this is, if this is in the 1970s, you're going to throw a 1959 Pinot in the lineup. Like that feels unfair. But anyway, I digress. Uh, So that one, but Irie took a close second. And I mean, they say that that's kind of what changed the industry for Oregon at large. But I don't know, when you look at like Oregon wine trajectory, I feel like it's only been within the last like 20 years that people started paying attention. Am I completely incorrect in saying that? I think they started getting, to your point, a a lot of attention in the 1960s. I think you mentioned Irie. I think, you know, David Lett, um, if I'm correct, like he kind of was one of the first to really explore like high quality Pinot Noir and Chardonnay in the region. Um, And then like uh, Dick Ponzi, right? A Ponzi. And so Mm -hmm. I, I, I think that they they were kind of the pioneers um, and started getting attention. I, I think if I'm remembering too, it's it's almost like, it's funny because we talk about like, you know, the new world and the old world and how we we don't have the same kind of like restrictions here that we, you know, that, that are dictated in some regions in, in Europe per se. But I think a lot of these folks who like ended up going there in the 1960s, it was almost like because California was too restrictive, which was hilarious because... Mm. <laughs> So it's almost it was almost like the place if you really wanted to like you know be a little bit of right. a, a, a rebel or a hipster like do your own thing you know it was it was the place to go. Well, and maybe I should rephrase like when I'm when I talk about like popularity, I'm not like yes, like we had all these like Dick Ponzi is a great example of that. Like we had great producers that were coming up in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. You know, we had Adelsheim, right? Great example. CJ, you partnered <coughs> with them for a Heritage 91. Um, you had all these legendary producers that were that were starting out in the 60s and 70s and 80s. But I feel like when it comes to like, you know, people like actual consumers, not within the wine industry, like actual consumers outside of outside of Oregon, maybe even outside of like California. Yeah. They really only like I I feel like when I was in New York 10, 15 years ago, that was when people were like, have you heard about Willamette Valley Pinot? I really love Willamette Valley Pino. Like it started to reverberate a little bit. Um but I, I mean, CJ, I know you, I didn't grow up with wine. You didn't grow up with wine. But like, what was, do you feel like any of that holds true for you? Have you ever heard rumblings of that? 
I have heard rumblings of it. I've been speaking to Gina, um, the winemaker at Adelsheim, and speaking to Dave Adelsheim, and just kind of getting a better understanding of the process in which Oregon has taken and how it's grown. Obviously, you look at the sustainability live certifications, the way that the crop and farming is is changing. I think not just in Oregon, but in all in all uh, facets of the United States and the rest of the world. I think we're becoming more focused on making quality wine the right ways. And I think Oregon is becoming more of a mainstay, more of a staple to where it's getting mentioned um, amongst uh, other regions. Whereas in, in previous years, I don't think I don't think people were coming up, would have been coming up to you talking about Willamette Valley 25 years ago or 30 years ago. But I think right. now it's more prevalent. And people that don't live in Oregon have a greater appreciation of Oregon wine than they yeah. probably ever have. Yeah. Like, I think I always use my mom as a barometer, right? Like, if my mom has heard of something, that means it's probably, like, gotten pretty popular elsewhere because, like, you know, she knows what I tell her, but, you know, she's not super into wine. And um, I, I don't know. I, I find I find Oregon fascinating. And as I was researching the history, I was like, isn't it interesting that it's not been that long, right? 1960s, not that long ago. And we look at some of these up-and-coming states within the United States like producing wine and we're like yeah like they're doing a good job like can you imagine back in the 60s like you know Virginia was basically Virginia today is basically Oregon back then right so like Virginia has the possibility to do something you know as great as Oregon did and and we're sort of like watching the the blossoming stages of it so I think it's super fascinating that um that it wasn't that long ago that these that these wine regions started producing wine does that fast am i the only one that feels that way things definitely shift over time and i think we're seeing that now we're talking about locations virginia like i'm interested in tasting virginia wine mm -hmm. now and then tasting it 10 years from now and seeing some of the subtle changes that you'll, you'll notice in terms of like important producers you know we've mentioned uh the irie vineyards we've mentioned ponzi adelsheim which of course uh cj i mentioned you you have a relationship with sokol blosser Irath, Amity Vineyards, Elko Vineyards, Bethel Heights, like these are all some of the legends, the classics. Um, but there's been a lot of a lot of growth in Oregon since then. And you're seeing a lot of producers not only making Pinot Noir, which is, of course, I think like what most people know Willamette Valley and Oregon to produce. But we're also seeing a huge influx or ex I should say uh, renaissance for Chardonnay because Chardonnay has been planted there for a while, but a lot of people yanked it out. Um, for, you know, a couple decades. And it, it sort of had this rebirth. And I was, I forget where I was recently, somewhere in Oregon that someone was like, yeah, like, it seems like now that, like, we we used to have an issue ripening Chardonnay, but with the last couple of vintages, you know, it's not been a problem. Like, we've had warmer seasons. We've had longer growing seasons. Uh, Chardonnay's doing really well. And one of my takeaways when I was up there about a year and a half ago was sparkling wine. And I'm curious if either of you have any thoughts on sparkling wine from Oregon. Just that I want to drink more of it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Same. That's my, yeah. Same. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've had some really good um, sparkling wines out in Oregon and just tasting at different places. Um, Gina and I actually did a, a tasting in New Orleans where she brought down a, a bunch of different wines for us to taste. Um, Blanc Blancs, et cetera, as we were going through the process of figuring out how we wanted to make our sparkling wine. So I wasn't aware of all the different um, winemakers who make sparkling wine and they make it so well in Oregon. But I think those taste trials, it kind of opens your eyes up to the fact that I just, like you said before, I need to drink more sparkling wine, specifically from Oregon. I had a sparkling wine the other night that 
uh, I think Gina made. That's funny. You should, you should bring it up. <laughs> I actually do. And I don't even know where this came from. Like, where did that even come almost, from? Oh, are you somewhere. talking about the 2016 Blanc de Blanc? I, I was. Yeah. I was. I had it. I forget what I was cooking, but I was, it was a Saturday night. I had opened something else. Um, and this is not a this is not a sliding your way, but I opened something that was terrible, and I was like, oh, I was like, well, we gotta we gotta turn this night around. So I opened your one. I was like, this is much better. It's way. This is definitely what I had uh, in mind. I, I didn't pay her to say that. I did not pay her to say that. No, you didn't. I even Instagrammed it on my own. I just have to say, I'm I'm so overdue for a visit. Um, Amanda, if you want to road trip it with me, I would be very excited to head up there with you. Cause yeah, I just feel like there's so much, there's so much happening, you know, there's so much innovation and new producers, you know, that, um, I just, I feel like I, I definitely am due for a, 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 a educational trip, which will involve some tasting, obviously. I usually put together a list of places I think people should visit, uh, depending on their taste preference, obviously. Um, I actually, obviously, this Beaufort is not paying me to say this, but I really like Beaufort and the way they make their wines. And my shipment, I just got an email, my shipment's on its way to New Orleans, which is makes me happy because the holidays are approaching. But I usually have a, a list of places they should go to, depending on, you know, what types of wines they like. I have a few, you know, restaurants, like I used to, my wife and I go to Red Hills Market, um, probably like three times a month. Yeah, just like good Oregon vibes. So I usually have a list of places that I think they should attend depending on you know what they're into. Tina's is in, in Dundee Hills. It's a nice restaurant. Um, they, they also have a, a pretty good wine list. So I usually give them a list of places they should go to. I always say you should hit up the coast just because it's really nice and it's peaceful. There's a beach. If you're into gambling, you're pretty close to a casino. Have some great cheese out there in Oregon as well as you get closer to the coast. Um, so I usually just kind of put together something like that to where I, I think there's over 600 vineyards, so you should just, you know, mix it up. Go to some small producing vineyards, go to some larger ones, um, just kind of mix it up. And and depending on if you want to stay out in wine country, now, there's definitely options uh, for that as well. And I have to say, and you didn't pay me to say this either, you sent me home with a bottle when I was in uh, in Aspen. And I came home, I waited a few weeks and I tried it and I was very impressed. I thought it was really, really good wine. Um and I'm not just saying that, but I, I even like did a roundup at one point of like the celebrities making wines that are actually good. And yours is on there because it's genuinely delicious wine. So you should be very proud of what you've done. And I think considering that you like haven't been doing it that long is also very impressive. No, I appreciate that. And I think it's just a, it's a testament to the team I've surrounded myself with, the people that have been able to kind of help educate me on wine. And I'm obviously still continuing to learn, but it's also the curiosity that I have and I, I always tell Gina, I say, you know, this is what I like. You know what I mean? Hopefully the rest of the world likes it and we'll taste stuff together with my wife. And my wife will say, this is what I like. And we'll say, hopefully the world can kind of relate to our taste buds. And if they can't, maybe we'll, maybe we'll make something that they like eventually. <laughs> I think I, I always think that good people attract good people. And you and your wife, at least, are just the sweetest, nicest, most lovely human beings. So um, I love that you partnered with them. I was really excited. Uh, I was really excited to learn that because I think there's such a classic legacy here and they make such great wine. I've always been really, really impressed with the quality of adult time and the fact that they've been doing it for so long, like a lot of these legacy brands, like they can't, they can't keep it going for that long, right? Like we look at some of the great sure. ones of Napa Valley and things have changed tremendously, but I think adult time is still putting out great quality wines. Obviously, for those that don't know, we've released to date um, two Pinot Noirs, um, one, two, 
three rosés, uh, one Blanc de Blanc. I have, I'm counting because you know, sometimes you forget <laughs> one Chardonnay. <laughs> and I think, yeah, I was like one, two. Um, in 2023, I'm looking forward to releasing, you know, some more wines. We'll have a, a good lineup of wines for, for people to enjoy. But it's been a really cool process for me because I went from not knowing anything about wines to, you know, partnering with a vineyard to, to purchasing my own vineyard. And I think we'll always have a working relationship just because of the knowledge and the, the amount of fun that we've been able to have together. And um, the fact that they're just really good at uh, what they do and the ways in which they make the wine is something that I respect and admire. And uh, we'll be able to rely on each other for, for the foreseeable future. We've got a couple questions from the audience. We'll start with, how does Pinot Noir and Chardonnay from Sonoma differ from the Willamette Valley? MW Vanessa, I'm going to let you take this one. What was your what were some of your uh, differentiating factors? For me, Sonoma Coast can almost sort of be more austere sometimes, just depending on where you are. If you're in like the West Sonoma, um, you know, like the extreme. Um, whereas I get a little bit more of that kind of the, the fresh picked berry fruit with the acidity, but kind of a little bit more like roundness and lushness um, from Oregon. That was kind of my, that's one of my takeaways. I think you just described this wine to an absolute T. The Jolette is exactly <laughs> how you just described it. Like yeah. as you, I was sipping it as you were saying that, I was like, yeah, yeah, it's all those things. Yeah. <laughs> CJ, anything you want to add? Anything that you found? Like I know you drink a lot of Pinot. Anything that you found that kind of like separates the two? I think you, you, you basically described it. I do enjoy certain wines in Sonoma. I do enjoy them. I do enjoy the uh, the smoothness in them. I think depending on what parts of um, Napa you're in, I'm not a big Napa bold cab. I was guy, I was so. wondering if you're going to say it. I was going to let you say it, but I know you're you're not super into the Napa not, scene. So no, let's di- let's I'm dive in. Let's unpack big, this. I'm not <laughs> a big Napa guy. I'm. It's just it's just the way that my taste buds have have been treating me lately. I do enjoy certain certain Napa cabs, but I found that as an athlete, and this is just my personal body, my body doesn't respond as well um, to, to bold caps in terms of how I feel the next day, in terms of how I play the next day. And I think this, the smoother wines have been better for not only how I sleep at night, but how I recover you know, in the sports world. So I, that's why I've gravitated towards the more smooth wines. Even there's some smooth wines made in Sonoma as well. Are you are you saying that Willamette Valley Pinot Noirs and maybe specifically that of Heritage ninety wine are just like better for you and will make you a better athlete and potentially make you good enough to be in the NBA? Is that what you're saying? That's what I heard. Because <laughs> that's what I understood. <laughs> I'm not saying you'll go to the NBA, but you will be able to function at work the next day in whatever job that you have. And you I'll go to my version of the NBA. Should. Yeah, unless you're drinking too much of bubbles, you shouldn't have a hangover the next day, um, which is, you know, what I need in my lifestyle is I need to be able to function. I need to be clear headed either when I'm taking care of my baby or when I'm running the offense, you know, with 20,000 people watching in the fourth quarter. Like I got to be sharp and level headed. And um, I have I don't feel sluggish when I drink certain organ wines. Um, and that's seven years of drinking them. Eight. Now. I think that's like the best endorsement you could give for Oregon wine. <laughs> um, CJ, I'll let you take this one since you live there. What is the best time to visit Oregon wine regions? Oh, great question. Not right now. Um, do not go. Right now is right the winter, now. by the way, since if anyone's yeah. listening to this in here. Yeah. Uh, not, not right now. I would say the best time to visit Oregon wine country would be May, June, July, 
August, when you get about halfway through September, the rain begins to come back, but it's still pretty with the leaves changing colors. Yeah. So the fall is not a bad time to go. But summer, Oregon is one of the best places in the world um, in terms of climate, in terms of things to do, in terms of obviously drinking wine. Um, it'll be hot, but if you're out in, you know, depending on uh, what, what wine region you're in in Oregon, you'll yeah. have that cooling effect as you get closer to the sunset. It'll be nice. It'll be peaceful. Um, and you will enjoy um, the scenery for sure because it won't rain for about three months out the year. And that's when I would ideally go. Yeah. Just just don't catch it during a heat spike like I did this past July because that was yeah. – Oregon is not equipped for that kind of weather. It's not a place <laughs> you want to be during a heat spike. Yeah. <laughs> it was like 100 and something all day. I think IPNC is in July again this year too. Uh, is- yeah. So that's that's exactly where I was. And I actually – I will say shout out to IPNC. It's the International Pinot Noir Celebration. It's an awesome event. It's like this weekend thing. We call it a summer camp, like wine summer camp for adults. You basically go – you like – you can stay in the dorms if you want to. Most people stay at a hotel. But then you just like – you're immersed in all things Oregon. So – and all things Pinot Noir, not just from Oregon. But you go around to vineyards. You do classes. You do meals. It's really fun. Um, unfortunately, yes, this year, this past year was in the dead of July during a heat spike and it was uncomfortably warm, but a lot of fun nonetheless. Um, this is maybe one for me. I'm not sure. Do Oregon wines age as well as California wines? I think the answer is yes, they they do. Absolutely. And I've had some of the, the wines from Oregon, especially some of the old Juan wines from like the 80s and the early 90s. Those wines are unbelievably good. I I have been blown away by the ageability of those. I, I've also had um, some like older Ken Wright Pinots. I've had, um, oh gosh, I'm, I'm blanking on the other producer, but some really, really, be- oh, old like Irie Vineyards. If you can find some old Irie Vineyards, those are great. You know, they lean more into these like kind of uh, – it smells like when like in the fall when like the leaves just start to like just start to turn a little bit. They start to smell like that. Um, but they're beautiful. They're really, really pretty wines. Age a little a little like Napa, a little like Burgundy, I don't know, a little bit of both. Um, <laughs> we sort of touched on this. Why are Oregon wines more affordable in California wines? Just Napa, right? Just like it all goes back to Napa. <laughs> <laughs> Although it's that's a that's a big generalization though too, like California. Because yeah. keep in mind, like Barefoot is also from California. This is true. This is true. A lot, and there are very affordable wines in California. Mm-hmm. But yeah, mm-hmm. but yeah, you do tend <laughs> to get more bang for your buck in Oregon. And I've heard, you know, because Oregon is such a a region that really values organic farming, sustainable farming. Um, you do tend to get better quality fruit and more organically farmed fruit for uh, less money because it is just something that's sort of like built into uh, into the equation. CJ, would you agree with that? I mean, I'm sure you're knee deep in that stuff right now. Yeah, I would say that from a sustainability standpoint, Oregon is in the right direction. Obviously, um, the state in general is more, I'm not going to say they're more health conscious, but we're moving in that direction to where I'm starting to read the backs of labels to kind of figure out how they're making their products, how they're making their fruit. You're starting to get whispers of certain vineyards or, or winemakers that aren't doing things the way that mm. most other people would like to see it. And I'm starting to hear about that as I'm building out my vineyard. So I'm trying to take the proper steps um, now to make sure that we're live certified and are doing things the way um, we should be doing them. So that the world is in a better place and that our um, that our environment is, isn't being exposed to, to too many toxics or yeah. chemicals. You got some great people up in Oregon really leading the charge, especially with like the regenerative farming uh, aspect of things. Like I love listening to Mimi Castile. Her family owns Bethel Heights. She's got her own uh, own winery called Hopewell. 
um, I love listening to her and her take on farming, regenerative farming, and really taking things to the next level when it comes to sustainability. So, I, I mean, not that we don't have great people here in California and all across the United States, but it's been really fun to see you guys kind of take a really giant step forward when you didn't really necessarily have to, right? Like, you didn't have to do everything that you've done. So that's been kind of cool to watch. Um, will Oregon sparkling age as well as champagne? That's a that's a Vanessa question. Gosh, well, it's kind of like I, I almost feel like uh, Amanda, you should chime in on this a bit because of your <laughs> history with working with like older Napa cabs. But I almost feel like it's like the chicken or the egg, where it's like, are people aging it? So like, do we know? Because I feel like for a while it's like, oh well, Napa cab isn't going to age. But like, how many people were really holding on to them, right? Because like, they, yeah, the, the the thought was that they won't, but the truth was that they do. So I guess my question would be, I don't know, where can I find these these older sparkling wines from Oregon so that I can try them? I think like given everything that we know about how wines age typically, I think the answer is probably yes. Like, yes, it they should can, be. They will age. I mean, I think if they've got that acid backbone, right? I mean, they should. Yeah, I just uh, haven't had them. I think all signs point in that direction. Um, well, I think only time at all. And, and truthfully, I don't think sparkling wine has been the thing up in Oregon for long enough for us to actually right. know. But right. CJ, what yeah. do you think? You want to you have a hot take on this? I'm pro-Oregon, but I think I think it, it's centered around the lines of how are you aging it? Like, how how is it in your cellar? Are you racking it? Like, what's the temperature? I think all those things play a factor. I this is me telling a story, a longer story. When I moved, you know, from, from Oregon to New Orleans, I had a cellar, I had 1100 bottles in my cellar. So I moved 1100 bottles from my personal home cellar to an offsite cellar. And obviously I had racks and all that stuff. My, my, the cellar I ended up moving it to didn't have, I didn't have enough racks for 1100 bottles. So some bottles were up, some bottles were tilted. You know what I mean? I think tasting through some of them, they're going to taste different depending on how you store them and the temperature that you store them at. So I think, all those things play a factor to where I couldn't just, I have Oregon wine and California wine sparkling and, and not in my cellar. And I couldn't say that this bottle is better than that bottle because maybe it wasn't treated the same. So I, I didn't think it would be, it, it's not fair for me to say basically because how you store it will kind of determine the taste in, in most cases. CJ, I'm so proud of you for that answer. It's a great, great, <laughs> that's a great I've, answer. Yes. I, I feel like, you know, for a guy that was like, I didn't grow up with wine and I'm kind of like only new to the game. Like that was such a well put thought out mm -hmm. answer and not that I'm surprised in the least, but like as like as a psalm that like warmed my heart and you're like, well, it, you know, it depends on how you're storing it. And there's a lot of fat. Like that just, yeah. that made me so happy. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I, as much as I want to say Oregon is better, I can't, I, I can't, I can't do that. That's not factually correct from, from what I've seen, because like I said, I've, I've, I've had wine travel from Oregon to New Orleans and tasted it and side by side. And I've done all those things. And it literally depends on the trauma you put the bottle through. Yeah. Yeah. I think that it's a, that's a great, great point and CJ you are so such a breath of fresh air and like so so needed in this wine industry I'm so excited yeah. that you're here I'm so excited that you're part of the wine community I am thrilled about what you're what you're doing with Heritage 91 um, I do want to give you a, a, a moment to just like plug your wine um, like where you can find it what people need to know 
Yeah, um, you can find my wine right now um, almost exclusively at McCollumHeritage91.com. My last name, Heritage91.com. We're sold out of our Pinot Noir right now. We have small quantities left. We have Blanc de Blanc, Rosé, and Chardonnay left. We actually have a holiday bundle that you can buy right now where you get the Blanc de Blanc, the Chardonnay, and the Rosé. I think the cool part about the, the wine that we're making right now with, with Adelsheim is that um, we're making a variety. We have a variety of price points and we have a great winemaker. The wine's made the right way. Um, Pinot Noir is really, really good. I think we've had a lot of hits um, on that. It generally sells out pretty quickly. The Rosé is a fan favorite for a lot of people that I've met in New Orleans and been with, from our staff to our players to fans. Um, and the Chardonnay, you know, you know how Oregon Chardonnay is. Uh, it's it's very, very smooth. Uh, mine's more, you know, pear, a little bit of taste, like you get that pear taste in it. But um, as a person who's gifted Chardonnay to people who don't like Chardonnay, they seem to have enjoyed it more than they thought they would. So I think that's a sign that, um, one, we got a really good winemaker, and two, the grapes in Oregon are, are phenomenal. Yeah. Chardonnay is where it's at. I'm a big fan of Chardonnay. I think you're right. I think Chardonnay, if you gift Chardonnay from Oregon to someone who doesn't like Chardonnay, I, I think they'll probably be pleasantly surprised. Um, and if that's your only takeaway from this podcast, that Oregon is not just a place for Pinot Noir, you can also find great Chardonnay and great sparkling wine. And you can find a lot of wines uh, that are delicious on wineaccess.com. And you could also just let us select them for you by way of the Wine Access Unfiltered Podcast Wine Club. If you're not a member, it's time to join. I don't know what you're waiting for. The time is now. Get your get in on the next shipment. The link is below. Um, remember to, while you're at it, remember to like and subscribe and review and do all those things that we really appreciate. CJ, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your incredibly, incredibly busy schedule. I know you are uh, a tough guy to lock down, so I, I appreciate you being here. And um, until we see each other, hopefully at like Aspen or something else in the in the next few months, uh, I'll see you soon. This is the Wine Access Unfiltered podcast. We are your hosts, Amanda McCrossan and Vanessa Conlin. And we thank you so ever so much for listening and joining us on this wine adventure. Cheers, guys. Cheers.